we uh, in here then are going to move into our sermon time. All right? So the last month we spent some time relaying a groundwork of what the church is. Okay, we answered the question, what is the church? Uh, by saying it is the body of Christ, it is the gathering of Christ, and it is the ambassador of Christ. And so I want to encourage you guys, uh, if you didn't hear any of those sermons, uh, I encourage you to go back. It, it was in some ways uh, recasting a vision, a reminder of who we are and what we're trying to do here at Center Church. And so I encourage you guys to go and take a listen to those. Last week, we talked about um, just this de divisive political season uh, that we are in and, and provided some reminders as to how we can engage in that. And so if you guys uh, weren't able to be part of our gathering last weekend, I'd encourage you guys to, to take a listen to that. Um, today, though, we begin a new series looking at an Old Testament book that I am guessing that the majority of us have never read. And, and I'm guessing if I asked you right now to turn to this book uh, in the Bible, many of us would go to the table of contents right away. Uh, it's an obscure book. But we're going to be spending the next couple of months looking at the book of Nahum. Nahum is a minor prophet. Um, it's called a minor prophet not because it's unimportant, but because it is shorter. And there are 12 of these books in the Old Testament, 12 minor prophets, but they are all highly important, highly important. Now, when some, some of you hear me talk about Nahum or minor prophets, um, you've probably already started thinking about lunch or a to-do list, or maybe the football game that you're looking forward to, to watching today. But, or when you hear me say highly important, uh, you maybe silently chuckle or smirk, and now I can't even see your smirk because uh, of the masks, and you can all be thankful for masks, maybe the, for the first time today. But um, that this is just the reality of these minor prophets in the Old Testament. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time to explore why we're going to slowly work through this book. Now, clearly, if, if you know our history here at Center Church, uh, you would know that, that we think these books are crucial because this is actually the third minor prophet that we've preached through uh, in our five years. So we, we preached through the book of Habakkuk, and we've also preached through the book of Jonah. Um, but... I empathize with the question that many of you might have, which is why read these abstract, distant, seemingly meaningless minor prophets? So I have three answers to this question, why we're going to slowly work our way through this book. So, first of all, understanding the smaller parts of the Bible helps us read the whole Bible. We've got to understand the small parts in order for us to be able to understand the greater story that's going on. So there, there are right ways and there are wrong ways to read the Bible. And as we work through these books, my hope is that we can help to communicate some of the better ways 
to read the Bible. So the Bible is 66 books, okay, written by 40 plus authors. But the Bible is one story. It's one story. What we're reading in Nahum is explicitly and directly connected to what we read in the Gospels in the New Testament or the epistles in the New Testament. It is all intricately connected. So what's happening here in Nahum is vital to the whole story being told in the Bible. Now, contrary to what is typically thought, this book is not a throwaway book. We learn essential aspects about who God is and his work in this world that we're living in right now. This idea then of one, of one story in the Bible, among other points of emphasis, this is, comes from an area of study or focus called biblical theology. Okay? Biblical theology. If we can learn to read the Bible as it reads itself, the Bible can can and will come alive by God's grace. These books, like Nahum, can come alive for us, invigorate us, actually have us excited to read the Bible if we understand how they fit into the greater story. Another aspect of biblical theology beyond just the fact that the Bible is one story is that it has Jesus as its central point. Okay, the point of the Bible is Jesus. So, so every part of the Bible, wherever we're at, if it's coming before Jesus, then it's pointing forward to him. If it's after the time that Jesus was on the earth, then it's pointing backwards to him. We've got to understand that the lens through which we read the Bible is Jesus. He is the focal point. He is the main character. Now, this is tough for us because we read the Bible with an inherent question. What should I do? That is how many of us approach the Bible. What should I do? A better question for us to ask when we approach the Bible is, what has Jesus done? What has he done for us, either so I don't have to do, or so that I, I can be empowered to do, like we were talking about at the beginning of the service, with, because when he was reviled, he did not revile, he can provide us the power, the strength, that when we are reviled, when we are hated, we don't have to return hatred to the one hating us. So the Bible is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done and is doing and how we then can join him in all of this. This leads us then to the second reason we must read books like Nahum. Jesus is there. Jesus is in this book. We're not going to see his name explicitly in this book. We're going to have to do some digging and some work to get there. But Jesus is in there. And, and this is really how Jesus teaches us to read the Bible, okay? So in the New Testament, in Luke, Jesus says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, the prophets here is talking about Nahum, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus is telling us that when we read the Old Testament, the intention is to get us to him. We have to get to Jesus. So in the Minor Prophets, we're going to see evidence of our need of a rescuer. We will hear whispers of a king who will deliver God's people. And ultimately, this is pointing forward to Jesus. So unless we see Jesus in Nahum, we are not reading it correctly. We have to get to Jesus in order to read this book rightly. If we read Nahum and simply come away with, we need to be more thankful. We are not reading this book correctly. We've moved on from Jesus. It's now about what we do. And the point of the Bible is Jesus and what he has done. Now, this is going to have ripple effects in our lives and how we live our lives, okay? It will affect our actions for sure. But first and foremost, the emphasis is on Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, he said, Know Christ in your sermon? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. We have to get to Jesus. We've got to get there. No matter where we're at in the Bible, we've got to get to him. Jesus is the cheat code for understanding the Old Testament, for making it come alive. And when we are able to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, we will be able to see the beauty and the glory in greater ways. Okay, third. We also see then how God reveals himself. You could also say he shows himself in the Old Testament to be who he says he is. Now, some of you may find yourselves rattled this morning. Some of you might find yourselves, based on circumstances in your lives, questioning the goodness of God. Or, or maybe you've just come through a season where you question the goodness of God, or you question the sovereignty or the power of God. And you wonder, where are you, God, in the midst of my anguish? Where are you? As we look back at these parts of the Old Testament, we can see people who feel similarly. People who maybe had a hard time seeing God's goodness in that time. But these are people who are also able to experience resolution. Their story is far enough back where, where we can see God working, God coming to them, meeting their needs. Now, this doesn't mean that we will always get the resolution that we want in our own lives. But these examples in the Old Testament shout at us in the midst of our hurting that God will fulfill the promises that he has made. God will keep his word. God will show up. It's hard for us to see right now. It's dark wherever we are. But God is saying, I am the light of the world. I will come. I will show my faithfulness. Trust me. 
God will save. He has done it before, and he can and will do it again. First Peter chapter 1 says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to those prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, because the prophets have preached what they have preached, because they have seen what they have seen, because they have testified to God showing up in the ways that he has, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace. Not in part. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The prophets of old prophesied of grace. They predicted the sufferings of Christ, but also the subsequent glories that would come because Jesus suffered for us. The prophet Nahum was serving the people in his day, but he also serves us today. He was announcing good news, which we're going to come back to in a number of weeks. But he prophesied to God's people so that we would set our hope fully on the grace revealed in Jesus. This is why we read books like Nahum, so that we can see Jesus being foretold, so that we can see how God has revealed himself throughout history how he has revealed himself to his people, how he has fulfilled promises that were made hundreds of years prior. So let's look at the first verse of Nahum and try and get some contextual understanding of this book that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of months. All right, so this morning we're going to look at one verse, okay? One verse is all we're going to look at this morning. So let me read this. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. All right, so oracle. Oracle is another way of saying a prophetic message. This is a message that hasn't yet happened, but it's going to come to pass. Okay? God is speaking through Nahum something that will ultimately come to pass. It is a message that is being uttered by a man named Nahum. So Nahum, we read here, is from a city named Elkosh. Now, there's no historical record of this city. So there's nothing else that we can learn about this city. But we do know that Nahum, Nahum's name means comfort, Okay. So the message that Nahum is bringing to God's people is intended to be a word of comfort. Now, as we get into this book in the coming weeks, we're going to begin to question that idea that this is a word of comfort. What we're going to see is that a word of comfort for one person 
is going to result in the exact opposite for someone else. Nahum is bringing a word of comfort to Judah, to what remains of God's people at that time. But Nahum is bringing a word of condemnation, a word of destruction, a word of woe to Nineveh, to God's enemies. Now, if you grew up in the church, or if you were here for our series going through the book of Jonah, you may know the significance of Nineveh, of this city. It was essentially the capital city of the Assyrian kingdom, of the Assyrian empire. So what I want to do here is just to give a little bit of a history lesson to get us what happened prior to Assyria and Nineveh, what got us to that point, uh, so we can just understand a little bit of the context. So God called and formed his people Israel through the patriarchs. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the individuals initially that God worked through to create his people Israel. One of Jacob's sons then, Joseph, also played a crucial role in the life of Israel as he rose to a position of prominence within a neighboring nation. Egypt, okay? But eventually, the leaders of Egypt died off. And those leaders forgot about Joseph, forgot about how he had delivered their nation. And so they then forgot about Joseph himself. And when that happened, they then made Israel's slaves in Egypt. Okay, then God raised up a man named Moses, to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery. And Moses led them out of there. Eventually, he led them to what's known as the promised land. The promised land is the land that God had said, I will give this land flowing with many good things that is abundant in many good ways. I'm going to give this land to you. And so God's people are led to the promised land. And then for a few hundred years, Israel is led by judges. Okay? These are basically military commanders. Maybe some of you have heard about Samson. He's probably the most well-known judge. Then Israel talked to God and they said, we want a king like all of these nations around us. We don't want a judge. We want a king. They desired a king like the nations around them. And they were given a king. And his name was Saul. And Saul was a total flop for the nation of Israel. And then David was given as a king. And David's reign is kind of viewed as the pinnacle of Israel's success. Never really got better than that in terms of the kingdom aspect for Israel. David had a son whose name was Solomon. At the end of Solomon's reign, Israel split in two, okay? In 931 BC. So in the northern part was Israel. In the southern part is Judah. Okay, so we have a divided kingdom. A couple of hundred years after this, Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to Assyria. Assyria being the the dominant civilization at that time. Okay, now leading up to the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, there was a prophet that was sent to them. Uh, Not just to them, but to Nineveh as well. And that prophet's name was Jonah. Okay, 
So Jonah was sent from Israel to Nineveh. Now, Assyria was a brutal nation. We're going to learn more about that because Nahum talks about this really explicitly. But this brutality caused surrounding nations to feel threatened and to hate Assyria. Now, Jonah, he he was part of all this, okay? He, He lived in a nation in Israel that was threatened, that was being brutalized by Assyria. Jonah was told by God, go to Nineveh and warn them. Tell them to repent. Jonah, driven by probably hatred, but maybe some fear as well, he decides, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going the exact opposite direction away from Nineveh. He refused God's call, okay? But through a miraculous journey in the belly of a fish and so forth, he eventually went to Nineveh and he preached to them. Now, his sermon was really brief, at least what's recorded. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay? So Nineveh repents. Okay? Notice in his sermon, he's not like even calling them to repentance. He's not like painting this great picture of God. It's almost like he's delighting in this idea. He's calling down God's judgment on them. That's what he wants to happen. He wants them to be destroyed, to be decimated, to be wiped from the face of the earth. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the response of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. This is crazy. This is the very reason Jonah ran the other way, is because he knew that God was good. He knew the kindness of God, and he knew that God could bring this about in his hated enemies, the enemies he wanted destroyed. This was his worst nightmare. Now, Nineveh repented, but Nineveh's repentance was short-lived. So what we find in Nahum is the sequel to Jonah, okay? Jonah goes and he preaches to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. What we get in Nahum is the sequel. This is what happens after the repentance kind of wore off, after uh, Nineveh returned to their evil and wicked ways. So this is going to foretell the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. This is what Jonah wanted to see. This is why he pitched his tent outside the city, what he wanted to enjoy. In this book... And all that's going to transpire, what we're going to see is we're going to see the faithfulness of God to his people in the face of a relentless and brutal enemy. But what makes God's faithfulness stand out even more is understanding the context of what is happening within his people, within God's own people. For much of Nahum's life, Judah was ruled by a king named Manasseh. Manasseh was described as shedding much innocent blood. He led Judah, excuse me, he led Judah into great idolatry. He even sacrificed his son as an offering. Because of all of this, because of the ways in which Manasseh ruled, God said 
he would give Judah into enemy hands. He would give the southern kingdom, his people, into enemy hands. And this is what will occur. But despite this, despite Israel's, Judah's rebellion, God still loved his people. He was still rescuing them. He was still wooing them, showing them there was a king that was good. In the midst of a book that is filled with heavy darkness, we will see the light of God's goodness shine through. We will see how it points forward to the light of the world, Jesus himself. We will see good news. We will see gospel in unexpected places. We think about where we're at today. A pandemic, sickness in our bodies, other realities have put us in positions that are unenviable. The biblical pattern is in the darkest valleys, in our darkest valleys, we are confronted with God's goodness. Maybe not right away. Maybe we don't always see it immediately. But we will be confronted with God's goodness. Israel was taunted by Assyria. They faced the threat of death death every day. Every single day. They needed good news. Judah needed to hear good news. They needed to see God. And so do we. Whatever our given situation, we need to see God. We need to hear of God's sovereignty, to hear of his power, to experience his care. But we also need to see how he shows himself. And that's what we're going to see in Nahum. We're going to see how God shows himself to his people. Nahum's vision is intended to captivate God's people with hope. That's true for us today as well. We need to be captivated with hope. Ultimately, we need to be captivated with the hope of the gospel. The biblical storyline can be so helpful for us in all of this. As Nineveh returned to their sin, which is going to lead to their destruction, so also, as we read on in the biblical story, we find that Judah also returns to their sin. And it's going to lead to, to the destruction of Judah and ultimately all of Israel. Now, we think about this idea of visioning or vision. We oftentimes love today this idea of visioning. Visionaries who have dreams they captivate us, vision casters. But, but what we find is that so often our visions, our personal visions that we have, are fixated on temporary ends. Nahum is giving hope to God's people, a cosmic hope to God's people. But, but he's also warning them. If they don't turn from their sin, this is what it's going to look like for you. So the physical destruction Destruction that is being foretold about Assyria is true also for God's people. If you don't turn from your sin, 
This physical example is a precursor to your spiritual reality. If we don't turn from our sin, we also will be destroyed by our sin like Assyria was destroyed by theirs. God spoke to Nahum in a vision. We get a similar interaction in the New Testament with John receiving a vision recorded in the last book of the Bible called Revelation. These visions are actually very related. Nineveh's physical fall is an example of how God won't allow violent empires to endure. God will not allow it. Every violent empire will come to an end. And we see this ultimately fulfilled in in the destruction of Satan's wicked spiritual empire in Revelation. God will prevail. He will see his promises through. This happened with Assyria. This will happen for us as well. Now, Nahum is recording this vision in a book. This is not insignificant. In fact, I would say it's grace that Nahum is recording this in a book. God wants his people to know the truth about their situation. God wants his people to know the truth about their situation. But more importantly, God wants his people to know him. He wants his people to understand who he is and how he works. So he had this vision written down. And this is true for us today as well. God wants us to know him as he's revealed himself. Now there's many cultural depictions that we've, we've been given about God. God does not want us to know him in those ways. Like the grumpy God in Monty Python in the Holy Grail, or maybe just some epic voice in the Ten Commandments, or the good-natured depiction of him in Bruce Almighty. God is altogether different than what we get in these movies. God reveals himself in certain ways. He's going to reveal himself in certain ways in Nahum, and we need to listen closely. We must listen to his revelation in Nahum and in the Bible broadly so that we can understand who he is. Most specifically, we need to see him through his son, Jesus Christ. We also see him through his church as well. But Nahum has a present word for us today. A couple points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, in your desert, in your valley, in your dark night, God has a word for you. God has a word for us. And that word is Jesus. Whatever you think you are craving, ultimately, it is found in Jesus. He is what you need. Get a couple of quotations here. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is talking about Jesus. And then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Nahum. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
God speaks to us primarily through his son, Jesus. This is the word you need to hear every single day, over and over, on repeat. Jesus is the word we need to hear. He is a word of judgment and a word of justice. He is a word of fear and a word of forgiveness. He is a word of death and a word of life. Jesus is the word we need to hear. Is that enough? Is Jesus enough for you? The call for us is that we would look nowhere else. Is Jesus the vision of your life? Don't limit yourselves with visions of, of puny, like puny visions of dream homes and success. Jesus is the word that we need. Is he enough? Is Jesus enough? There's nothing greater than him. Nothing above him. He's the top of the chain. He is everything that we need. He is the only thing that can satisfy us. Jesus is the word, the answer that we need, that you need today. There is nothing else that comes close to him. Nothing else that rivals him. Jesus. And Jesus alone is what your soul is craving for. And anything else that you hear, any other whispers that you hear, this will give you what you want, is a lie. You may be satisfied temporarily, but only lasting, enduring satisfaction, fulfillment is found in Jesus. God's word to you this morning and tomorrow and every day this week is Jesus. Secondly, God makes himself known. Nahum is going to show us God's terror and God's mercy. God hates sin. Hates sin to the point that he's willing to die on a brutal cross for you. That is how much he hates the sin that resides in your heart. Do we hate sin? viscerally hate it. That's how God feels about our sin. God loves us when we least deserve it. Loves you. In the midst of your sinning, he is loving you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that his love is that high and wide and deep and good? Because it is. Jesus is so much better than anything else this world offers. This is how he reveals himself to us. The call for us then in this is to see him for who he is and to believe, to give yourself over to Jesus.